Hey, so the two chapters for this week are actually pretty short, and there's not a ton um, of stuff to really talk about. So instead of two audio lectures, um, I'm just going to condense them both into one. Um, that is, uh, I mean, it might be good for you also because you can get through your um, modules quicker. Oh, well, I should say this. I'm also going to combine the module materials uh, since both modules usually open on the same day now. Anyway, uh, you're just going to have one for this week with this audio lecture um, and the combined materials. Um, and that'll let you get to your exam a little quicker, right? So hopefully that is, uh, hopefully that's good. Hopefully you like that. Um, all right. One thing uh, before I start, this is information you need to know prior to listening to the lecture. Um, what is a weenus? Do you know? It's, uh, I'm not sure if this is like a anatomical term. I, I kind of don't think it is. You always hear that it is, but I'm not sure that it is. But it's at least slang for like the skin of your elbow, right? So it'll come up. The term, not your elbow. Um, so one thing, you know, to reiterate what was in the chapter, some stuff that I thought was really interesting. Spoonerisms can be induced, right? If you haven't read the chapter, spoonerisms have been in prior chapters, so you probably know what they are. But if you haven't really read this chapter, it's essentially when you swap around the first two letters um, of paired, the first letters of two paired words, right? So um, a Casio watch would be a Wasio Kach, right? That's a spoonerism. So you can induce those. Uh, and the way that you induce them is that you, you'd say a word that starts with W and then a word that starts with C. So water cooler, witch compactor, witness killer, right? Stuff like that. And then you'd show them Casio watch and they might say Wasio Kach. But... Uh, once again, I'm in my closet just looking at stuff that I have in front of me. Um, so at some point, I might say New Balance. Um, so you can induce those, right? So you kind of prime. Remember from last lecture, we talked about priming, where you can prime a word. You can also prime a structure, right? So you can, you can kind of really, you can prime anything. Like if you think about the brain as a collection of... Uh, of a, a pattern of activity. So, and, and that's really what we think is going on. Uh, most neuroscientists think is going on is, uh, is a pattern of, of neural activity um, that gives rise to a behavior or a word in this case, or what an emotion, anything, right? And uh, so what you can do is priming seems like it starts to activate that network. The network is partially activated and then you, in, you introduce something else and you'll, that network will, you know, still be activated. Maybe it'll, like we talked about the word nurse can prime seeing doctor faster. Um, so, you know, part of the activation that's common for doctor might be active for nurse. And so then it's not as hard to, um, you know, see the word doctor. Um, that also works if you like the idea of the attractor space. You can think about a lot of areas being deepened 
in the attractor well for nurse. And then when the word doctor shows up, it's not as much work. Uh, your marble is already in the attractor for nurse. It's really close to the attractor for doctor. And so it just floats over really nicely. So anyway, we can prime essentially anything. So you can kind of prime a structure. You can prime the motor system to want to say words that go WC. WC, WC, WC. And then there's supposed to be one that is CW and your motor system is already primed to go WC. So sometimes it does. Now, it's more likely, in fact, 20% of the time when it's tested, when the spoonerism, when you exchange the letters, if it would produce real words, it'll happen 20% of the time. Now, 20% doesn't sound like much, right? I think one of the reasons why we don't think like 20% sounds like a whole lot is because maybe we think in terms of grades, right? If I got a 20% on something, I wouldn't be very happy. But if we thought of a 20% chance of something happening, that's one-fifth, right? And that means that every five times you have somebody do this test, they would... Um, have an induced spoonerism. And that's actually quite a lot. When you think about, you know, just doing it five times, you'd expect one. That's a lot. It's one of those things when, you know, one of the statistics that people like to talk about is uh, 10% of people have some sort of mental illness. It's 10% doesn't sound like a lot. Until you assume that that means that it's actually one in 10 and then you think that when you're in one of those large in-person lecture classes where there are 200 people, that means that there are 20 who have some form of mental illness. Now, that usually is a large you know, definition of what a mental illness is. So some people might have an anxiety disorder. Some people might um, have autism, you know, and that those are totally normal. It's not like 20 people out of 200 are the serial axe murderers or something like that. But it does give you a better idea of, you know, the kind of things that, that different people are dealing with. And more importantly, it gives you a better idea of translating percentages, which I do feel like we always think of in terms of grades, into uh, incidence, like prevalence in a, in a population. So 10% on a test is terrible. Um, but 10% of the population, you know, presenting with something is uh, quite a bit. So it kind of depends on what you're talking about, if it's a lot or not a lot. Anyway, 20% um, rate of sw swipping, <laughs> switching your words around. I'm going to leave that in. I usually cut these out. I usually cut those errors out. Uh, to sound, I don't know, more intelligent or something. I don't leave it in because it's a really good um, indicator of an error, which we've been talking about, you know, pretty much this whole time. I mean, this is really the first time we're not talking about errors. I feel like what happened there is I said swipping, swapping and switching, I think is what was happening. I was trying to figure out, trying to access both terms. And they kind of both got active and sent, you know, maybe... <laughs> the motor program for both was active at the same time. Um, <clears throat> anyway, 
Now that changes when the spoonerism would end up creating non-words. So my example of wasi okach is two complete non-words. And that doesn't happen as often, right? So that might happen 7% of the time. Uh, actually, I've got a couple examples here um, that are a little bit more SLP oriented, right? And I know a lot of you taking the class are, um, you want to be SLPs eventually or some sort of related field, some ideology. Um, so if you think about cleft lip, now if you swatch, swip, <laughs> again, if you switch those around, you have two actual words. So it would be more likely that you would switch cleft lip around and make it left clip um, than it would be for cleft palate because that would be two complete non-words. Peft clalet, I guess. So it's more likely that you switch those around when they're real words than when they're non-words. Now, an interesting... Um, Counterpoint to that is when the word becomes obscene. Somehow there's some sort of block uh, that doesn't allow us to say. So like maybe if I had the phrase peered weenus, you probably wouldn't switch that around. I mean, obviously you're doing it now, but um, in the induced spoonerism uh, technique, that wouldn't get switched around. Uh, it would, but not very much. About 4% of the time that would get switched around when the word is obscene or taboo in some way. So, again, thinking about it like a, an attractor landscape, you do have maybe some deepened attractors for real words. It's not very hard, maybe, for your marble of what's going to be said to fall into when it's a real word. So cleft lip, left clip, those are both real words. It's easier for you to fall into a real word than it is to fall into peft clalet, which isn't a real... There's nothing in the attractor landscape that's ever been deepened for peft clalet. I mean, obviously now I've ruined myself and now I might be saying those words at some point. But this is something we haven't talked about. An attractor landscape can also have uh, hills, these are areas where you maybe don't want to go, right? And so you can have these hills, these blocks. And even though Peerdwinus is going to try to induce the spoonerism, um, you've got uh, an attractor hill, like a repeller, essentially, that doesn't allow you to quite get to that, saying that obscene term. Uh, and that's in place. Now, I would suspect that depending on your setting, those um, repellers might go away and possibly turn into attractors, right? So, I mean, they do this study in the lab. You get freshmen to come into the lab. Most of them are 18 years old. They're around all these, like, professors, and they start trying to induce spoonerisms they're going to try to be proper in this um, setting. Now, if you had, um, uh, well, if you had 21-year-old, uh, you know, seniors, juniors, and seniors, um, and you were at a bar and you induced spoonerisms, I feel like the obscene and taboo spoonerisms would occur pretty much with the same rate as the 
regular real word spoonerisms, if not a little more, right? I know me, I know my friends when we're hanging out, there's a lot of obscene and <laughs> terms that we'll throw around. Um, all right, so then repair, which is really what the whole thing is about, is repairing these terms, right? And the the induced spoonerism is kind of taking us along this track uh, to think about repair, that there's some sort of monitoring. That's That's what it's really showing, is that there's some sort of monitoring. We all know that the obscene term is a real word, but there's something that's monitoring that and keeping us from... Uh, in some circumstances, saying uh, these terms we think would be inappropriate at the time. So um, there's a couple different types of repair, right? We've got uh, actual repairs and we've got revisions. So repair is when you've said something wrong, Um the example in the book is talking about describing one of those nodes to someone else. Um, and you might say, so go from the, go from the red to the green. Um, you want to say, go from the red to the green. What you actually say is go from the green to, uh, no, go from the red to the green. Right. So you might say something like that. And that's a repair. So the repair is you've screwed up, you know you've screwed up, and you will then repair that. Now, there's a kind of interesting thing that comes up here, which is we will use editing phrases, right? Or editing expressions, or you can even think of them as like repair words. But essentially, this is a word that happens right after that phrase, which almost acts like a signal to the listener that that was incorrect and it's going to be changed. Another thing that's kind of strange and interesting about this is that those editing expressions usually tend to be, and not just in English, but in all languages, well, in most languages, um, they're the same words that we use to take up space, like our filler words. So you'll see a uh, used a lot. So if you said, you wanted to say, go from the red to the green, you said, go from the green, uh, go, go from the red to the green. There's the uh again, right? Or I know that when I do it, I say no. That's my editing expression. Um, so I'll say something, something, no, and kind of negate it. I might make a gesture, which is another thing we're going to talk about, but I might make a gesture that kind of wipes the slate clean, sort of like no, no, and then start again, go from the red to the green. Um, and that's a repair. Now, editing expressions, the way that they differ from the filler words, I mean, they're the same word, so it's weird to say that they differ, but one of the ways that they differ um, that I've been looking into lately is uh, the inflection. So it's the same word, but it's said differently, and it's the way that it's said that gives it a different meaning, I think. So if we can look at the us and the nos and the, uh, oh, no, wait, all those different kinds of things. If we can look at the inflection and see something similar about it, it might teach us something about um, what we're doing. Now, I think we might be using it more like an interjection. Um, so we might be saying it more like we would say, whoa, or something like that, rather than when we use it to fill a pause. Usually when we 
use it to fill a pause. It's a more almost at the glottal fry level, you know, um, like that. I mean, you just want to take up some space um, and kind of like that. But when you're using it as an editing expression, it's a little sharper. The onset is quicker. Um, the frequency tends to be a little bit higher. So you go, oh, um, no, oh, you know, and like that. A little higher, sharper, more staccato. There's definitely an inflectional component. So the words are the same, but the way that they're said completely changes the meaning in this context. Now, it's different from a revision because a revision is going to completely revise what's been said. Usually, almost half the time, revisions are going to have complete fresh starts, right? Repairs don't usually have fresh starts. One thing I forgot to say about repairs, though, is that it seems like it goes back to the clause. So if you screwed up and you said, well, when we go to the store, I want to make sure that I get store. Uh, I want to make sure that I get eggs, right? So you have, you've accidentally said store and you meant eggs. And you'll go back to the beginning of that clause, usually for a repair. You go back to the clause. You don't usually cut it off and just say the word again. You might say the rest, the, the clause that that is inside of. That might be indicative of how we're processing language. It might be indicative of how we're repairing language. Like we might throw things down in the clause by clause level. We have seen that before with the way that we make errors, that um, large-scale errors happen at the sentence level across clauses, but small-scale errors, little, you know, switching words around happen within the clause. And so when we make these repairs, we kind of tend to repair it the entire clause by itself. Now, a revision, like I said, is going to be the entire thing a lot of times. You'll revise the entire uh, sentence. So you'll just kind of maybe wipe the slate clean again and say, hmm, no, and start over. A lot of times these revisions may also clarify, right? So you've realized that uh, maybe what you said isn't exactly the way you want to say it, or it doesn't have enough information in it. So you might start over and add more information in other places. The book talks about the nature of the editor, uh, you know, what, like, and that's like the guy that sits in our head um, and kind of edits these things. Like, what is it really? Is it something that's monitoring at the pre-speech level? Or is it something that's monitoring what we're hearing coming out of our mouths and saying, whoa, that's, you're doing something crazy, man. Um, and it actually seems like there's evidence for both. Right. So we do have these covert repairs where we'll repair something that we haven't even said. So we're kind of predicting that it's going to be an error. We'll then revise it and say something else. But we also have we know that we make real errors. We've read four chapters on it. Right. So we know that errors actually happen. Um, so it's not all prelinguistic. We do catch errors. And we will revise them. I mean, there's also errors that we don't catch, too, right? Um, and they kind of slip past the editor. Now, I think this might be different levels, right? 
it looks like, and and it's not just me. the re- The research shows, you know, essentially the same conclusion as well. The book didn't really, um, I don't think it discussed it in quite enough depth to really get into how there's probably two different types of processing. But I'm not necessarily sure that it's um, all an editing goal. You know, it's not. That's not necessarily what goes on at all the levels. So it's possible that the first level, the pre-linguistic level, might be more like, and this comes from a lot of that uh, introspection, remember, back in the first lecture about introspection. Um, Wundt, right? Remember Wundt? So this comes from a lot of introspection um, and a little slight amount of research, so it's hard to it's hard to actually research this. There's not a lot of research that exists on it. It's hard to do my own research on it. You'll see why in a second. When I say it, though, do your own introspection and see if you think that it might be true. But at the prelinguistic stage, it seems like sometimes we come up with a better word, like a better word is activated in the midst of what we're saying. So words are coming out and you are going to say, well, it just happened. The one that I left in, right? I was going to say swapped, and then I wanted to say switched, and I thought that that was better. So swapped was on its way. That's where I had planned to go. And then I thought, now let's say switched. It's a little bit better. So then I tried to throw switched in, and those, in this case, in my case, they got like mingled together and they came out as swipped. But I know that sometimes when I do this, um, I'll be able to catch myself before the other word comes out and insert the new word. Oh, this is a better way to say it. Boom. And I'll do it. Sometimes when I think of a better way to say it after the fact, I'll make a revision where I might stop and come back and do a fresh start and say something again with the better word in there. So I'm not necessarily sure that that's and edit, it's not really sure that editing is the goal in that case, right? It's more like you're still just trying to speak. You're still actually doing the building the word or the phrase, and you've just done it a little bit too late. So you try to catch yourself before it comes out. Now, it's not to say that there aren't errors and there isn't editing. What I think is going on with those induced spoonerisms is those are complete errors, Those are mechanical errors. Those are motor program errors because you're already in the habit of saying a word that starts with a W and then a word that starts with a C. So when Wassio Koch comes out of your mouth, then you hear it and you say, no, that doesn't make any sense. And in fact, there's some neuroscientific evidence for what this is. You might have heard of mismatch negativity. You might have heard of... uh, an N100 response, one of those two. They're kind of the same thing. Some, sometimes the term is used interchangeably. But essentially, it is something that comes up in EEG research where um, when someone is predicting that something is going to be a way, and when it is not that way, you'll see this uh, dip, this negativity, this negative charge, in the electrical activity from the brain 100 milliseconds after the stimulus has happened. So if you're expecting 
your dog to come out of their doghouse when you call them, and a cat comes out, you will have an N100 response 100 milliseconds after the cat comes out of the doghouse, right? And so when you make a spoonerism, I think that you're going to see an N100 response as soon as that comes out of your mouth. And in fact, in the research, we do see that people will have this mismatch negativity sometimes with the spoonerisms, not all the time. It depends on how closely you're monitoring your speech, it seems like. So if you're monitoring what's going on, there is a mismatch between, well, and it, so it doesn't necessarily have to be with what you heard. It actually could be that there's a mismatch with the motor program and the expected uh, motor program, right? So your mouth might be kind of expecting to say, wah, and then a C comes out of it, and it's like, whoa, that was weird. But it could also be the auditory component. It's almost impossible to tease those two apart. And in fact, maybe they work together. It doesn't really matter, because the end of the, at the end of the day, it's still an N100 component. Somehow, you've noticed that what you've said, what's come out, isn't what was intended to come out. So then that signals, that indicates that you've screwed up and you need to go back and, and change things. Contrast that with deciding that you want to say a different word and then either screwing them up or um, stopping yourself and then the new word comes out. Or revising what's already come out and going back and starting completely over. Those are two different styles of repairing an error. Well, there's one other thing I want to mention about repairs, though. Uh, and that's, the book mentions this well-formedness rule. I'm not for it. I think it's ridiculous. The well-formedness rule essentially says that you will see a repair be made, and it will have to, uh, you could add and between the screw-up and the new repair, and it will be complete. And that somehow we're doing this because we want it to be grammatical. Like, we want to be able to add and and make a complete sentence. So we want to be able to say, go from the red to the green and the green to the red. That's the well-formedness rule. To me, you know... It smells a little ridiculous. I don't think that that makes any sense. I don't know why we would have a desire to make our error grammatical with the repair. That doesn't make sense. It's already an error. We know that it's been screwed up. To me, the reason why we're starting over at the clause level... Now, this is kind of what happens, is the reason... The reason it looks like it's well-formedness is because you're starting over at the clause. Whenever you have a clause, you can throw an and between and link those clauses. And so it looks like it's the well-formedness rule, but that doesn't really seem like it makes sense. No, instead, I think we're starting over at the clause just to negate the clause. We're kind of thinking at this clause level at that point, you know, when the when the speech is coming out of the mouth, we're past the uh, the top level where we're forming the rules, the words that we're going to say. Now it's down into the speech program of these individual little segments. When that speech program gets uh, 
in trouble, we want to reform that speech program, that little motor program that's come out. And it's kind of, you know, together as a packet. Another reason why it might be happening is to just give a little context to the repair that we're making. We said go from the red to the blue. No, green. Well, is it green to blue or is it red to green? We don't know what the repair is referring to. So if we add a little bit of information in, a clause of information, then we know where the repair goes. We don't need to start the whole sentence over. It's needless to do that. It's just using up time and effort when we don't need to. Um, but we do need to give some context to figure out what the heck we're talking about. So I think that's what's going on with use, with repairs happening at the clause level. I don't think it's at all this well-formedness rule. It's a little, I don't know. It's a little ghost in the machine to me. It doesn't really seem like everything we do has to have a reason. We know that we do weird things sometimes that seems like it has no no purpose. And so it's just like glitches in this crazily complex system uh, that we are, right? All right, so we'll move on to gestures. I, I really love speech gestures. It's, I mean, it's kind of a shame that there's only one chapter and a short chapter at that on gestures. I could read an entire book on it. I wouldn't subject you to reading an entire book on it um, unless you took a class on speech gestures. And I would teach one. I mean, maybe I will. So look for it eventually. Um, but I think it's, I think it's amazing. Now it's important to point out here that I don't. I'm not. When I say that, I don't mean a sign language class. We've already got those. But I mean the gestures that accompany when you're not intending to make gestures and they happen. I'm doing it right now. And I know you can't even see me. But these gestures that accompany speech, the kind of unintended gestures, um, that's what's really interesting to me. And in fact, you do see this with uh, sign language, right? The sign language is the signs. You can look it up on um, Google. I mean, you can look up videos, but that's not really, that's going to give away what I'm talking about. You can look up, like, what is the sign for this? And it'll show you a picture of hands, right? But when you watch a sign language interpreter, and in my in-person classes, I have quite a few sign language interpreters. And, uh, well, not like a ton in one class. I have one in each class. Anyway, um, when you watch them, one of the things they do is not just sign. They don't just sit there and sign. They'll make gestures with their face. I mean, they can't do it with their hands, right? Because they're, that's what they're using to speak, to communicate. But the unintended gestures they're using will happen sometimes with the feet, with the rest of the body, a lot of facial expression. And I know that good translators use other facial expressions. Um, but it's hard to teach necessarily the expression that comes with sign language. It seems like good interpreters just are naturally expressive. Now, that's true for good speakers. One of the reasons I think that, you know, I, not this is not to brag, but uh, and certainly, I mean, you're not you're not even taking an in-person class from me. So it would be kind of weird to brag about this anyway in an online class. But 
I do get a lot of feedback that I give good in-person lectures. I think one of the reasons is because I use a lot of gestures. It just, it happens. So there's something to look at. Your, you know, your whole brain is being engaged. Um, and a lot of people do this. A lot of good speakers do this. It's hard to train it. It just has to be kind of something that you either develop from watching other people who do it, or sometimes it's innate. I think that's true for um, sign language as well. Like the really expressive uh, face and the rest of the body really conveys, you know, the message that's trying to go across. But it's hard to teach. You can teach the sign and you can teach the individual letters and all sorts of stuff like that. But what really makes a good interpreter is that uh, harder to teach um, extra information that comes across, across with gestures. So anyway... We've got a couple of different types of gestures, right? We've got symbols, we've got indices, and we've got icons. Symbols are things like a thumbs up or a nod or a shrug. They just stand for something else, right? So it's just a way to convey information maybe from a distance, silently. If you're somewhere where you don't want to make a lot of noise, it can accompany the phrase like, oh, yes, and then you'd give a thumbs up, and it's a, like a really emphatic like, you know, bring me that fried chicken. Oh, yeah. Um, indices are, are different, right? So they're just indicating something. So you can point at objects. You can say, like, uh, bring me that fried chicken over there and point at it. I, you know, I'm saying fried chicken, but what's in my mind is chicken fried steak. So I realize that I'm saying the wrong thing. Anyway, a chicken fried steak would be really great right now. If you can shove one through your speakers and I could get it, that would be wonderful. Anyway, that chicken fried steak over there looks really nice. And you'd point at it, and that's an indices. Um, you can nod at things. So it's a little bit different than the symbolic nod. The symbolic nod would be yes. The indices nod would be just like nodding at that thing over there. Sometimes moving your eyes towards something is a, is an you know indicating that object there's a lot of different kinds of indices now there's also icons and icons will just represent you know they'll they'll stand in for uh, objects but what's interesting about this is dogs will actually use both symbolic and index gestures right so You'll see them. I've got a video on this um, in the lecture materials, so check it out. Uh, it's not in the lecture notes. You'll have to actually go to the module for it. But anyway, um, you'll see them. If you have a dog, you know that they do this. But they'll kind of do that thing where they put their paw on you in some fashion. And it's not an index gesture because they're not pointing at anything. But this means, you know, and you know, it means like, hey, pet, pet me, right? They put their paw on you, and that's what they want at that point. But they will also make index gestures. They'll use these indices, right? I know mine do. They'll bark at me, and then they will stare directly at the box of treats. And then they'll look at me when I haven't noticed, because they're like, this dumb guy doesn't know this language yet. They look at me, they bark again, they stare right at the treats. 
And I'm supposed to know that this is giving me a treat. But this is an index. I mean, they don't have hands. This is the best they can do to point at it and bark and say, yo, dude, treats, please, and point. So they'll use both of these. It's really amazing how, um, <laughs> you know, expressive they are. Obviously, they don't use the icon gestures, but that's that's okay. It seems like they might need speech to, to learn those. But for these abstract concepts, well, not even abstract concepts, but for these concept-related ones, um, they'll use them. But it's not just dogs. Uh, babies will do it too. In fact, one of the first things that babies do is make eye contact with their caregiver and then point. Before they start doing, you know, babbling that means anything other than just like vocal play and other kinds of weird stuff like that, the first like intentful communication is pointing either with eye gaze or with their fingers. So they're totally using index gestures way before speech ever comes in. Elephants do it too. It's totally amazing. Elephants will use gestures to a slight extent, usually with their trunk, but they absolutely understand human gestures. It's amazing. Gestures are kind of universal, right? And this is true, I mean, if you've... <laughs> if you... Uh, have been to another country where you don't speak the language, the gestures are one of the biggest helps you have. I remember um, I was taking a Spanish class uh, when I was in undergrad, and my Spanish teacher said, like, you know, you're, you're adequate at knowing this language, which was, <laughs> I was happy with being adequate, right? Um, but she said, you're Gestures, like again, I use hand gestures like crazy. Um, said your gestures are great, right? Like we, you know, Spanish speakers use gestures like crazy. Um, and she's like, when I go home to see my family in Nogales, they, uh, we're like gesturing all over the place. And um, she said, so like you're, like it's going to be great. Like you'll maybe not have the best handle on the language, but with the gestures, you'll really be able to communicate your point. Sometimes the gestures are more important than the words. So I've always thought that was really interesting, that the the words are there to be specific, but a lot of times the gestures are there to uh, really convey the, the basic part of the message or, or help convey the basic part of the message. So iconic gestures, we kind of glossed over those because I want to talk about babies and dogs, but essentially... You know, they're things that we're using to, like, really kind of add to the story that we're telling, right? And that's why I say the language is a little bit more important there. So if I want to say um, it was, like, flapping in the breeze, I might make a, a waving gesture to accompany me saying flapping in the breeze. Obviously, the dogs are not going to use this. The babies are not going to use this. Um, neither are the elephants. It could help with communication between cultures, um, but it also, potentially, it could be confusing. Um, well, no, I think it probably would help with communication between cultures. It's language-based, but it's kind of language-independent. There are concepts that we might need language to talk about, but we don't necessarily need the decided-on language because we're kind of like representing the space 
right? So like when we wave our fingers to represent uh, something, whatever it is, flapping in the breeze, a flag or something, um, we're representing, we're kind of almost adding a visual image to um, what it is that we're talking about. And that might actually help uh, the listener kind of understand what we're talking about. So adding this visual image, even though it's done with the hands, uh, will engage other parts of the brain. Um, and then we get this multi-sensory input. Now we know that we will take in multi-sensory input. We'll take in visual information and auditory information and put them together to form a more complete picture of what's going on. We will certainly talk about this more when we finally talk about the McGurk effect, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. We're not quite there yet. Next week. Um, but that's a really interesting example of <laughs> combining visual and auditory input. Um, but we certainly do that. And it seems to strengthen the ideas that are coming across. You can see this with pictures as well, right? If someone gives a lecture and there are no pictures, it isn't nearly as engaging as when there are pictures. But similarly, if there was just a slideshow full of pictures and maybe some text, but no one was talking along with it, it wouldn't be as good. What you really need is someone giving you a story verbally and then some sort of um, picture to go along with it. Now, thinking about this right now, what you're listening to, this podcast-based lecture doesn't offer the images, except that's why I want you to look at the show notes before listening to the podcast. There are some pictures that um, you can you know, pull up from your memory and kind of like see them as I'm talking about certain things. And then the concepts make a little bit more sense. Another thing I try to do is describe things to give you a picture um, so you can kind of generate your own picture and put the two together that way. It's a little bit more difficult, you know, when you're just working with an auditory format. It can be done, but um, certainly more difficult than just finding a good picture and then describing it. Um, but if you, you know, seeing a picture, generating your own mental picture, whatever it is, this is still multi-sensory input that helps, uh, aids in the understanding. And that might be what's going on with gestures. You're kind of using it as a picture on the fly when you don't have anything else. Um, we also see that cultural uh, differences, gestures that are different across cultures kind of reflect how language is different across cultures, right? The book touches on this a lot, so I'm not going to really go really deep into it. But one of the things um, that he mentions is the difference in egocentric versus allocentric um, perception of the world, right? So egocentric is what you typically use probably here in the United States where you're talking about things in relation to where you are right now. So if I was going to tell you, you know, if you're going to go from my house to Queen Creek, you're going to take a, you're going to go out, you're going to take a left, you're going to go all the way down until you get to uh, this road, you're going to take a left, then you're going to go all the way down, take a very slight right, you're at Queen Creek. And these are all based on me, egocentric, right? Or I'm putting myself in your place if you're leaving from here to go there. 
So it's a lot of lefts and rights. This doesn't make any sense if you're coming from a different house. You, you know, if you're even like facing north versus south, you're going to have to take a right turn first and then a left rather than a left and a left. So it is definitely, I think, a little bit less useful when you're not sure the orientation of the person. It's, it's almost essentially useless when you don't know their orientation. Um, it could be more useful when people are bad with their cardinal directions. Other cultures will use allocentric um, perception and description of space. That simply just means that you're kind of using the cardinal directions, right? So I could say, go south, go east, then go north, then go slightly east, and there you are. So I could do it that way too. Now this would work from anyone's standpoint. They could kind of figure out like, well, if I have to go south, I need to come up and go this way and then go south, and then I can follow these directions, right? And so you'll see that the gestures of the person will reflect their right or left when describing the orientation of objects, or they'll represent north, south, east, and west rather than right and left and front and back. So our gestures, to some extent, are language-based, right? The way that we conceptualize, and when I say language in this case, I mean the higher version of language, the, the internal conception, not necessarily the words. But the way that we are thinking about space or objects, the words come out and relate that way. The gestures come out and relate that way. Really, the gestures are just, you know, different words, really. So one of the final things that I want to talk about in terms of gestures is, um, like, why? What are they? Right? And the book talks about this, too. Are they just a cue? Are they there to help you figure out what you're talking about? It's possible. One of the things that the book mentions is that when people are in a tip of the tongue state, they'll use more gestures. So maybe they're trying to use the gestures to help themselves figure out the word that they're trying to say. Um, also, there are a lot of Broca's aphasia patients who will use gestures when they're trying to come up with the words that they want to get out. I can think of one right now um, who's trying to describe a ladder and what he gets out is zoom, zoom. And he is like motioning upwards. So he's pointing at the thing and, and, you know, the people that are talking to him are asking him like, what's this? And he's trying to say ladder. What he gets out is zoom and motions upwards. You can see that he knows what the heck the ladder is. The conceptualization of ladder in its most abstract form, is still there. But somehow it's not able to jump down into the realm of language. And, you know, that's true with the gesture, too. Like, he knows that it allows you to go up. He can get out that it allows you to go up. But somehow he's not able to kind of go, you know step, step, step with his hands. He's not making that gesture. It's So it's a little bit further removed from something actually being a ladder. Like he knows it goes up. I mean, I know that internally he knows what a ladder is. He knows what it is. It's not like he doesn't know 
it. He knows how to use it. But somehow the concept of being able to describe it and even being able to use the gesture to like really accurately represent it is somehow gone. Um, it's really kind of a strange thing, right? Now, one other thing, um, if you've taken 205 with me, you know that uh, you cannot write these words either, right? So some people say like, well, you know, if you've got aphasia, just have them write down the things they can't say. Well, it doesn't work. That's not how language works. It's not, <laughs> it's not speaking specific or writing specific or gesture specific. It's something higher. If they just lost the concept of the word, or just lost the word, rather, then you could reteach the word. It's, it's a totally different problem. The whole connection to what the idea is, is not making it from the strange idea floating around in the head to the outside. And so the gesture is impacted, the writing the word is impacted, and the speaking is impacted. So that's some evidence that maybe the gesture is used as a cue. However, we do also know that people gesture more, but not exclusively, when there are listeners there. So I'm gesturing right now. I know you can't see me. I do it on the phone. Other people do it too. And clearly, it's not, <laughs> it's not just for you. But I also know that I'm not gesturing as much right now as I do when I'm in class, when I'm in an in-person class, walking around and gesturing and doing all sorts of things, right? Because I'm standing in one place. It's not like I'm pacing around in my closet like I do when I'm in class. So it's a little bit listener dependent, uh, certainly. It might not be completely listener dependent, though. It might be acting as a cue for me. The other thing, though, is that it might just be, you know, like I said, it's words in a different way. So it might be that I can't really talk <clears throat> without using gestures because somehow that's part of the word for me, right? So saying uh, jump or airplane or something like that, a, a gesture goes along with it because that's like part of that, of saying that word to me is using the gesture, There are people who, well, I do a lot of music research. There are people who like to make the case that um, music was the precursor to language. The reason why we developed music and rhythm and stuff like that is because we didn't have language yet, but that was a way to communicate. I don't agree with that. Obviously, we can't figure out where speech came from, or what music was developed for. Uh, so that question will never really be answered. But I don't think that music was proto-speech. That doesn't really seem to make sense to me. One of the reasons is, from a neuroscience perspective, speech is usually, and this is for most right-handers, speech is usually processed on the left. Um, for left-handers, it's a little bit less then, you know, for right-handers, it's about 95 to 98% of us will process speech on the left. For left-handers, it's a little weirder 
it's about 70%. So some of them will still process language on the left, but they'll just use their left hand for things. Other left-handers are like a mirrored person. Like everything that shows up on one side in a right-hander will show up on the other side in a left-hander. If you've wondered why neuroscience, neuroscientific studies use uh, exclusively right-handers, this is why. Because when you want to see brain activation, if you think it's going to be lateralized, you can't use left-handers. Too many of them are flipped. And then when you want to go and say, like, well, we're going to flip our data, it's hard to convince people that that needs to be done, even though we know that that's true of left-handers. But if somebody wants to say that your conclusions are invalid and you flipped some of the brains of your subjects, it is a valid criticism. You don't know what their brain is like. So you don't know if you flipped them for real or if you just flipped them because they happened to activate on that side and it made your data better. So it it's a little weirder. Anyway, that's why we use mostly exclusively right-handers. Anyway, um, music is processed on the right. So speech is usually processed on the left. Musical things are usually processed on the right. Now, if music was proto-speech, doesn't it seem like they would be processed on the same side? You're going to have to do a little bit of work with uh, learning the structure of the brain. Now, this comes up in a lot of classes, especially comes up in a lot of my classes because I'm a brain guy, a psych, you know, psychology slash brain guy. But um, the motor cortex is in the posterior portion of the frontal lobe. And essentially, that just means it's in the back part. It's closer to the back of your head. Uh, well, in the frontal lobe, right? So it's the most back part of the frontal lobe. That's the motor cortex. Broca's area, which is most mostly involved in speech. If you've had, you know, A and P, you know that. It, probably if you've had intro to communication disorders, you know that. But Broca's area is in overlaps with the motor cortex. There's some other areas. It overlaps with the motor cortex. There's a lot of research, though. This is really cool. that shows that Broca's area is active for gestures as well as speech. You know it as the speech center, speech production center. But it also seems to be related to gestures in some way. It might be the gesture production center two. That's cool. That's really cool. Because if you think about it, maybe gestures were proto-speech. Dogs use gestures. Elephants use gestures. They also understand gestures. Babies who can't speak yet use gestures. It seems like a lot of creatures use gestures. A lot of intelligent creatures use gestures right? We can even understand each other across language barriers a lot of times with gestures. There's something that's like really useful about gestures. I'm not saying I'm not switching camps and saying that there's a universal grammar. I'm not saying there's something innate about all gestures, aside from the fact that we're using them to convey ideas about space, about the spatial world, 
And the spatial world is the same for everybody. So when I point to the east and something is over in the east, it's going to be over there. I can do that with anybody from any culture. And if I point over towards the east, they'll know that something is over towards the east. They don't know what it is, but something is. And I think that's what the, that's the innateness. Not innate. It's just that it's, you're, you're talking about space. And space is the same for everybody. Anyway, because gestures are processed in the same place, well, production of gestures are processed in the same place as production of speech, I think, and it's not just, again, it's not just me. There's a lot of, and there's an article that I'll have you guys read um, that's looking at this as well. It seems like gestures are possibly what came before speech. They convey the same ideas as what we're trying to convey with speech. Speech is a little bit more specific. It allows us to communicate with each other about much higher level topics and communicate really abstract ideas like, you know, the concept of justice and fairness, which you really can't do with gestures. Um, but they, there is a, a link, right? For sure. There's definitely a link. Um, anyway, that's... I think one of the coolest things about gestures is maybe they are speech before there was speech. Okay, um, so that's the end of this lecture. Um, go through the lecture materials. Take the quizzes. There's just one quiz. Um, and get ready for that old exam, which will go up uh, on Wednesday. So check back. I not sure what time I have it set for, but it's going to go up. It's going to open on Wednesday. You don't need to take it on Wednesday. Don't, don't try to kill yourself going through this module and then going right into that. Do some studying. It's not due for a week. And then uh, hopefully you do really well and hopefully you've, you know, learned everything you need to learn. So anyway, good luck and I'll talk to you next week.